This podcast is brought to you by Estee Lauder Company's UK and Ireland's breast cancer campaign. The campaign helped to make the opening of Future Dreams House possible and continues to raise millions to help end breast cancer. The house offers practical and emotional support to those diagnosed with the disease. Hello, and welcome to a special bonus edition of And Then Came Breast Cancer from the Future Dreams Charity. Our podcast is about that moment when you're told that you have been diagnosed with breast cancer and for everything that comes next. And that includes what we put into our bodies to help us stay as healthy as possible throughout treatment and afterwards. I'm Louise Court, standing in for Victoria Derbyshire, and my guest is someone who can really give us some advice on that. Jane Clark is a nutritionist and dietitian with more than 30 years of experience. Her credentials are quite frankly impeccable. Jane has advised Jamie Oliver on school meals, David Beckham on his World Cup eating regime, and burnt out industry leaders on how to get themselves firing on all cylinders again. Thank you for joining us, Jane. It's lovely to be here. It's, it's great to have you here. And I'd just like to start with asking how you became an expert in, in nutrition and, and what exactly that means, because we see so many people purporting to be experts or giving us advice on nutrition on our social media channels. Um, but, but what does it mean to be a real expert? This is where it's particularly frightening in this whole field, because there is actually no legal definition of a nutritionist. That anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. Whereas if you're a dietitian, which is what I am, um, but, but for another reason, I don't call myself a dietitian, but I'll come back to that in a second. But if you're a properly accredited dietitian, it means that you have to have gone through, through your degree. And you have to know that whilst one can get it really right with food, you can also get it really wrong. And that's what's really important, that you have to be careful who you seek advice from. I mean, where, going back to your question of where did it start for me, my passion was always food. So I was brought up in a family where food was affection, food was love, it was cooking, but not in that sort of disordered eating, a sort of collateral, um, you know, using food to really exhibit different things within emotions. My mum was a fantastic cook. My great aunt was a fantastic cook. But my intrigue in science came from my gorgeous late dad. And he was a chemistry teacher. So for dad, you know, we used to sit at the meal table and yes, he wouldn't go into all the science of food, but he would tease that sort of curiosity within me as a child. And it was in those days that you could have the chemistry lab in the garage so that we would go. And he actually taught me at school chemistry. So for me, it was the combination of that love and passion and affection of food, but with my dad's scientific brain. So I went and did my degree at Leeds and thought that I'd come out with two things. I thought I would come out with amazing medical knowledge and an incredible passion for food. Well, I came out with one, which was a fantastic knowledge of medicine and what goes on in the human body. But sadly, it absolutely destroyed any passion I had for cooking. So I then went back and did my Cordon Bleu. And that's how my big sort of career really took off because I combine my passion for food and delicious food with real clinical integrity and medical knowledge. So tell me, please, we can eat really nice food that is really good for us as well. They're not we absolutely can. 
no, you can. And actually, it was a it was a big defining moment for me when I was about twenty five. I've also been incredibly unwell as a teenager between the ages of fifteen and twenty five, and I was I lost about a quarter of my life to being in hospital, and so I knew what it was like to be on on the receiving end of not very nice food. Also, care wasn't as I wanted it to be. You know, it's those often those questions of they say your friend is the person that asks you how you are and then waits for you to answer. For me, that's about the caring healthcare professional. It's, uh, it's waiting for the answer. So I had a dreadful time in hospital and my mum was the one who would bring flasks of soup and things in from home. So I knew really early on that I wanted to do things really differently and I wanted to be the sort of practitioner that would wait for the answer. And I set up my practice when I was 25. And at the beginning of my practice, I was looking after really very unwell people who were HIV positive and had AIDS. And this was in Nottingham, where I was born. And it was a lovely choreographer who had actually come from London. And he had carposis sarcoma, which is a tumor in the mouth that's very relevant to a lot of the work I do now. And I said to him, you know, what are you, what are you struggling with? And he said, well, I'm really struggling to be inspired about eating. He said, what I'd love you to do is to sit on the bottom of my bed and just tell me about all the meals that you've eaten. And I said, but isn't that torture? He said, no, because the way you talk about food just brings out that sort of evocative, that emotion. And for him, it was a, a pattern of his and it was, it needed igniting. So at the end of his life, I said, look, if there's one thing I can bring for you, what will it be? And he said, I'd love some fresh strawberries. And I said, right, okay, kind of the fresh strawberries coming your way. And so I took some fresh strawberries in the following day. And I got disciplined by the hospital because they said you shouldn't have bought something fresh in from home. And I said, oh, you must be joking. For me, it, the most important thing was you manage a tiny bit of that fresh strawberry. But yet, what was the most important thing is that I listened and I heard and I, I was there and food was part of our communication. So I, I came out of that experience and thought, I've really got to revolutionize this whole area. Because for me, I knew what it was like being a patient. I had the medical knowledge. I had the food passion. I thought, right, I'm going to put all three together and create my own practice and stand on my own two feet. Wow. And, and how did you start looking at the relationship between food and cancer and, and cancer treatments? That was many years ago. And I've been always throughout my career, I juggled, as you said at the beginning, you know, I've done a, been involved in amazing projects like working with Jamie on his school, Meals Revolution. And to this day, that is an amazing pioneering movement. And that's actually what I'm wanting to bring to nourish and everything that we're doing together. Because once you start to look at um, how important it is for someone to feel nourished, you really see it makes an enormous difference to someone psychologically, physically, emotionally, going back to my choreographer and his strawberry. And I, but I was writing and I was writing for the newspapers and I was getting a lot of letters in from readers. And I've been told by my doctor that I might have cancer, but really it makes no difference what I'm putting inside my body. You know, it, it's got nothing to do with 
how I'll get through my cancer treatment and how I move past it. And then equally, I was getting letters and actually phone calls from people who were being told the absolute opposite, that you mustn't eat this, you mustn't have that, and I'm frightened. And, and it, was a, it was another moment when I remember a patient coming into my practice and her daughter had um, a tumour and she was in her late teens. And she'd been told by uh, their healthcare professionals that really she needs to get calories inside her daughter and she needed to have fast food, you know, really get lots of junk inside her daughter to get the calories up. And she said, I didn't feed my daughter that rubbish in inverted commas before she had the cancer diagnosis. Do you think I'm really going to do that as a mother now? For her, a big part of the way she wanted to support her, her daughter was through looking at the relationship of the food that she was able to provide for a daughter. And I thought, we've really got to do something differently because it's dreadful what's going on there in the, in the environment, the articles, the scaremongering, the, the professionals that aren't educated enough. This is where I really wanted to create a big difference to actually put the right information out in a way that inspires people to believe they can actually do a lot for their bodies when they're going for their cancer treatment. Can you just tell us how common cancer treatments like chemotherapy affect people's taste buds? In real simple terms, a therapy for cancer, particularly chemotherapy, attacks rapidly dividing cells. That's what we're wanting the treatment to do, and that's it, that it, it attacks the cancer cells. Unfortunately for us as women, our rapidly dividing cells are also found in our skin, our hair, our nails, our mouth, and our gut. That means that when your treatment isn't targeted, it really attacks those very vulnerable cells like your mouth and your stomach, which is why you can get a really sore mouth, you can feel sick, you can get gut disturbances like diarrhea or constipation. You can feel really raw and as if your, your gut is on fire. And that's where the types of food that we put inside someone's body. And it can be as something as simple as when you've got an overactive gut and a sore stomach, having cooked foods that are warm are actually easier to digest than something that's really cold and raw. So again, that's just one simple example when the gut's going through a trauma, like going through chemotherapy or your mouth is really sore, something that's warm, not too hot to scold because your baby will be very sensitive to temperature but something that's warming actually sits far easier in the gut and it can just mean that you have less diarrhea and you have an easier time of your chemotherapy. This is wonderful when we hear the stories of, I had this wonderful friend and she turned up with a ready-made lasagna and left it on my doorstep and um, things. But, but what about when friends and family have incredibly well-meaning advice, but they've oh, yes. found something on the internet or on their social media and they, sort of bombard you with advice that may not be best for you but it comes from the best place they can be really well-meaning but also you have to be really careful that the whole of your life doesn't get all consumed by cancer and because your friend can then be the person that sends you the email articles your friend can be the, the person that tells you about or my friend or a contact you've heard about then starts bombarding you with all this information and a trick that I've used in my 30 years of looking after patients living through cancer, and certainly I found it as a teenager, is that I say, I allocate, allocate one hour 
during the day. And say maybe it's between 10 o'clock in the morning and 11. And let everyone know in your sphere of friends and contacts, if they want to talk to you about you having cancer, they can call you at that time and talk it through. But the rest of the time, they allow you to be you. Because enough of our lives get taken up by the treatment, the appointments, the blood results. And you never get a time to escape and to replenish and to restore. And I'd also, another trick is that any of those phone calls that you have to take about an appointment or your friend is calling you between 10 and 11 in the morning, do them in one particular area in the house. Or you could do it in a cafe. So that you, the patient, goes into that room and you can listen. You can help decide and work out, is this a good article, is it a good idea? And always run it past your medical team if they're suggesting you take a remedy or a supplement. But we'll talk more about that. But have those conversations in one area of the house. Then turn the phone off. Leave your phone in that room and walk out and be another person because you will find that you feel that your energy comes back. Because if you're constantly living under this cloud of being the woman or the man with cancer, there's no escape from it. And it's hard enough when we're trying to escape it ourselves, let alone when every conversation or every time you open an email. And it could be that you just have one hour in the morning that you look at those articles and you think, okay, that looks as if it's come from a good area, maybe PubMed or, you know, good scientific journal. And as I say, if we're talking about remedies, always check it with your medical team. But then the rest of the time, try and do things that replenish you. And that could be cooking. That could be going food shopping with your children and getting some lovely food that maybe you could eat as a family. So food can be something that can be enjoyable, therapeutic, and not this big area of a fight. Because that's one thing I've also noticed in the, the years I've looked after patients is if you're not careful, food becomes a real guilt trip. And you might think that you're doing right by supporting someone saying, this is superfood, this would be an amazing thing for you to eat. But then if that whole food landscape changes, well, you mustn't have a glass of wine or you can't go and sit in your favourite cafe and have a, a plate of cheese or you can't enjoy a takeaway with a friend. You've taken away a big part of one's social life, one's way of communicating and one's sharing. So food must not become something that's guilt-ridden. Is it hard, though, when you've got a cancer, uh, breast cancer patient and you've got loads of hospital appointments and you're feeling fatigued and tired and you feel, oh, I've got no energy to make a family meal. I, you know, that there's that sense of exhaustion, isn't there? Um, and, and we don't want people, listeners to feel guilty because they can't do that, you know, trip to choose something lovely. What, what advice would you give to them? I'd say your freezer is going to be your best friend because it's practical. But also it's economical. You know, we know frozen berries, frozen fruit, frozen vegetables, frozen herbs, and spices. So you can even get things like turmeric, ginger. And or if you've got a friend that's saying, what can I do to help? They will actually, if you get a big batch of fresh fruit ginger or turmeric, just freeze it in ice cubes for me. And it means if I'm making a juice or a casserole or something, I can quickly pop some of these sort of more nourishing ingredients, whether we call them superfoods or not, but 
It could be the freezer that has everything that could just be something that then you can grab at that moment when you feel hungry. But also it's fascinating to know that there is legislation that governs whether a, a vegetable or fruit is frozen in a certain time frame, whereas there's no legal definition of the word fresh. So something could have been sitting on a supermarket shelf for weeks, for months, that so has actually had less nourishment inside than something in your freezer. So when you're fatigued, when you're exhausted, when you're anxious even about going out, because of course we are still living in the climate where, yes, a lot of restrictions have uh, been removed for many people, but when you're vulnerable, when you're going through treatment, going to a shop can be really scary. And also if you've not done it for a long time. So ask your friends or get a delivery that stocks up your freezer and don't feel guilty for it because I was actually bought, you know, I'm, I'm in my 50s. Frozen food was seen as, oh, we don't have anything from the freezer. But now a good revolution is that you can get your coriander, you can get your ginger shots, you can get your turmeric shots, pop them in your freezer, and then you can make something really simple and nourishing. And and if someone just is, has absolutely no energy, do you have uh, a super quick fire, super boost drink or soup or something that someone could make or you recommend that they sit and have or lack of energy there's two things that they can play into that something that gives you that that mouth feel of just oh this is really good for me you know i think like a fresh root ginger tea and you could maybe put a little bit of honey in that and some lemon so that can give you a real tip without it being your classic sort of caffeine hit because you do find that when you're going through cancer treatment, A, teas and coffees can taste really horrid and they can taste really bitter, but also they're quite acerbic, which is sort of acidic on your gut. So tea and coffee can actually make you feel worse afterwards. But if you want in something that gives you a little bit of boost, then something like fresh root ginger tea can work. Or you can get them in the tea, tea bags. It doesn't have to be fresh of everything, just a ginger tea. You can get fantastic turmeric and ginger teas and lovely varieties out there or sometimes it that you're wanting something that has a little bit of protein in it so that could be a warm um, milky drink so that could be whether you're wanting you know cow's milk organic milk oat milk soya milk different milks out there but when it's warm and it has that protein sometimes that can lift blood sugar with the lactose or the milk sugar that's within it that's the natural sugar and the protein underneath it gives your body that sort of stability and that longer lasting energy. So that could be a good idea as well. Um, what about wine? I mean, that's something else that um, people are worried about whether they can drink or not. So obviously, if, you, if anyone has any concerns as to whether they're able to drink, I would always just check with your medical team just to check that there's no medication that you're taking that would be compromised by drinking alcohol, but that's not normally the case with breast cancer. When we're looking at breast cancer risk and alcohol, that's a whole, you know, we could do a whole podcast series on that. If I'm trying to keep a very long story short, what I wouldn't do is think that you hear all the stories out there of red wine being full of antioxidants and it's good for the heart, it's good for the body that would then make you choose, oh, I need to include some red wine in my lifestyle to reduce my risk of cancer coming back. 
because it's a little bit of a French paradox. And actually, I was interviewed many, many years on, on ago on Radio 4 about the death of a very eminent um, dieter called Monsieur Montagnac. And he was, of course, the first bon viveur of red wine and cheese and being able to lose weight. Very interestingly, he died of heart disease. And the reason that the French don't die of heart disease is because they don't record heart disease on the death certificate. So that's why they can be the biggest red wine drinkers, but they don't have heart disease. So going back to someone who's going through cancer treatment, sometimes alcohol can make you feel depressed. It can make you feel very anxious. It can disturb your sleep. It can irritate your weight. So if any of those apply to someone who's going through cancer treatment, I'd really question, do I really want that drink? But if you're looking at, does alcohol make cancer worse or does alcohol bring cancer about again? No, it doesn't. We know that a small amount of alcohol can be completely fine. But I just say that, and I certainly find it whether I'm very tired and with patients when they've gone through a really tough time, alcohol can really knock you. And then if you're having that little aperitivo, you're having that little glass, you think, oh, I do want that little drink. But then it can make you so shattered that then you don't end up eating properly afterwards and you don't end up slipping. So I just say, if you're really wanting to get your body into a strong place, See if you could maybe just have less of the alcohol and maybe just find that moment in your day. And it could be the 6.30 moment that the mum be thinking, I want that to release. Try and put something else in that little hour watch point. You know, it could be that you get on the phone to a friend and I'm not saying that's the same as the glass of wine, but it could just get you over that little psychological. I need to reward myself. And then you end up having a nice herbal tea. You eat really well. You sleep well. And the following day, you feel great in yourself, whereas the alcohol could, on the converse, make you anxious, guilty, and then you end up in a real mess in the morning or anxious. Yeah. Um, and, and what about comfort foods? I mean, often if you've just had a really tough time, you just, you want a comfort food, don't you? You want something that just makes you feel good. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you definitely think that. And that's where we said earlier that food mustn't become something that makes you feel really guilty. There's a very fine line between something that feels comforting and you have to have those moments because going through cancer treatment and living with cancer or having gone through cancer treatment is you need you do need to have those moments of comfort. So enjoy some comfort food. But then I'd say when it then turns into something that feels guilty or destructive for you. To see, was it truly a comfort moment or was it just something that then you slipped down that slope of just getting into a bad place of eating? Because the body's pretty, it's sort of, it, it, it's really cheeky. You can get into that very destructive cycle of eating really badly and then you feel lousy about yourself and then you're not going to eat well and then you spiral in the wrong direction. So if you can just break that cycle and just think, okay, I'll just start the day really well. And it could be breakfast is your thing or brunch. And then you think, okay, I feel good in myself. Take those small steps and see if you can just turn that spiral in the opposite direction and just eat something that's really good that makes you feel good about your body. Maybe give you the energy to do the exercise to get out there. 
but equally recognise there will be those moments when you just need to lead all the advice out the front door and say, I just need my moment. And it could be a sticky toffee pudding. And nothing that you put inside your mouth is going to be a poison. And I do think going back to what we were talking about earlier of nutritional, nutrition advisors, all the social media stars are implying that a food is a poison. It then makes you feel horribly guilty. But if you get a cancer diagnosis, is it something that I've done to myself? And that's a horrible shackle to put on anyone because that won't be the case. We do know that eating in a certain way can reduce our risk of certain cancers, but no one should ever imply that you have caused that cancer by eating really badly. Do you do you have your own food weaknesses? I mean, we've been talking about, you know, different cravings for, for wine and everything. What, what are your weaknesses, Jane? I luckily don't have much of a sweet tooth. So if I was going for a sweet treat, it would be a lovely chocolate that's got sea salt and maybe some almonds in it, just a little square of the dark thing. But for me, it is, I've got a real sort of umami toast bud. So I love olives, I love capers, I love little pickled things. And that's quite an interesting one with cancer. Fermented foods are fantastically exciting. And it's an area, again, we could wax lyrical about, but in essence, the fermented food is a food that's got all those fantastic bacteria that the bacteria produce fermented acids. And we know that when we put fermented foods in our bowel, mention the word bowel, yes, um, it actually nurtures good bacteria to be grown and they produce something called butyrate. Now, butyrate, without being too scientific or thinking my gut too much and making myself cry, is, is an anti-cancer substance. So fermented foods are fantastic. So I love sauerkraut. I love pickled cabbage and those sort of things. So they're the strange little crazy food treats I like. And those things are great to get in jars in the supermarket. You don't have to make yes. fermented you cabbage make stuff or anything. You can just buy that. Yeah, and now you can get fantastic brands of different fermented foods. And then there's kimchi and, and that's quite a good trick also if you're feeling a bit sick. Just having something that's not, often your taste buds go off sweet. So having something that's a little bit sour. Um, but equally, for some other patients, actually, I had a patient about another few weeks ago who was struggling with swallowing because anxiety was her big thing. And she couldn't get past that point of sitting at the table. And I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you into a secret about my chocolate trick. Now, Chocolate contains something called theobromine. Now, theobromine is like tapping, and it can give you a little hit, but also it's a muscle relaxant, which is another reason why it's fantastic to have a bit of chocolate if you've got a bit of a sweet tooth. So I said, right, what I want you to do before you even start going towards the kitchen or where you normally eat is just to have a little square of your favourite chocolate and just suck on it. And then it actually... A, you get the absorption of the sugar through the roof of the mouth, and that instills those sort of endorphins to, to lift the mood a little bit. But also, it relaxes your esophagus, which is your feeding tooth, so your tooth in your mouth to your stomach. So it actually means that you lose that frog in the throat that's stopping you from eating. And so it eases swallowing. So another trick is you could make a gorgeous hot chocolate. 
if you're struggling to have anything to eat and you've got that protein from the milk and the nice sweet. But I'd say use a, a dark cocoa bean chocolate because actually chocolate also contains some useful antioxidants. So that's a good meal in a cup. Great advice. Well, we're looking forward to welcoming you to Future Dreams House and um, creating brilliant workshops uh, where you can expand on all this. And and uh, we, yes, we'll, we'll be posting those on the website coming up soon, but we, we want to do them uh, going through the different seasons of the year. So that'll be very exciting. Uh, but thank you. Thank you for your time and your advice. You've made me feel hungry now. Um, and I'd like to say, and then came Breast Cancer, is a six foot six and factory originals production for future dreams. Future Dreams Breast Cancer Charity hopes you found this podcast helpful. We fund awareness, support and research. If you would like to help us do more, please text We Care to 7500 to make a £5 donation or visit our website at futuredreams.org.uk forward slash donate. Future Dreams Breast Cancer Charity will receive 100% of your donation. Text costs your donation plus one standard rate text message, UK only. Always get the bill payers' permission. We would like to contact you on your mobile phone with news and updates. If you would rather opt out, then please add no info to the end of your message. For example, we care no info. Thank you again for listening.